welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through the YJBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. This episode is an early introduction to a series of episodes released alongside our March 2021 issue on preventative medicine. This episode will also touch back on issues of racial disparities, which we discussed in two separate episodes this fall. If you are interested in this area of research, including the open policing data set that our guest has helped to analyze and bring to national attention, I encourage you to look at their personal website and related publications in the episode description. I'm your host, Wesley Lewis a second-year graduate student in computational biology and bioinformatics. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Emma Pearson. Dr. Pearson is currently a senior researcher at Microsoft Research, where she's been since finishing her PhD at Stanford under the advisorship of Dr. Yuri Leskovic. Prior to her PhD training, Emma received her MS in statistics from Oxford University via the Rhodes Scholarship Program. Emma also completed her Bachelor of Science degree at Stanford with a concentration on theoretical physics alongside a Master's of Computer Science. Following her time at Microsoft Research, Emma will become an assistant professor at Cornell Tech with her own laboratory among a phenomenal bunch of scientists. Emma's research bridges many disciplines and has encouraged myself, among others, to question how the growing crop of data scientists and computationalists alike can approach major impacts in areas such as preventative medicine, race and class disparity, cancer biology, and social movements. Her unique and disruptive research bridging multiple fields has also led to Emma being recognized in Forbes 30 Under 30 in science for 2020. Hi, Emma. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, So first, I'd like to thank you for setting aside time today and uh, start off asking a little bit more about how you got here. Did you grow up wanting to be a scientist or having family and role models in STEM? I think my family is predominantly not in STEM. Uh, I have a huge overdensity of lawyers in my family, but I think what my family does have um, is a deep commitment to intellectualism. Like, you know, every dinner table conversation is an argument uh, and and not about like normal (laughs) things, but about like, you know, what happens if time goes backwards or something like that. So I think, you know, my mom, for example, would like read me books about like quantum mechanics and and cosmology as a child. And that was not because she was a a cosmologist. It was just because she was sort of a polymathic, broadly intellectually curious uh, person. That's really cool. So then that sounds like sort of one of the first sets of memories, maybe that uh, pushed you towards the eventual concentration in theoretical physics? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I, I think probably being read physics books as a child didn't hurt. Um, I think, you know, I was always a math nerd. I liked math. Physics was heavily mathy. Um, and I think also in high school, you know, my first serious boyfriend really liked physics, so we used to study a lot of physics together. Um, and so obviously I was a pretty nerdy kid. And And I think a final thing is I didn't, as a child think that I was particularly good at computer science um, because I took a class where everyone else in the class was male and they knew a lot more about computer science than I did. And so, you know, I kind of came into Stanford, came into college thinking I was good at physics and not too good at computer science. And so 
you know, that I decided I should study physics. Ah, okay. So what led you to then still make the decision to get your master's in computer science? And what sort of helps ameliorate that feeling of uh, being less good in that field, less capable? Well, you know, I had come in thinking I wasn't good because I you know, I was in this class where uh, the people in the class weren't always super, super nice to me. They kind of made fun of me for not knowing much about computer science. And then when I got to Stanford, I thought, well, you know, on a whim, I'll try taking an AI class. Um, and and then, you know, when I was by myself, sort of in the in in the quiet of my own mind, I could take the tests and realize I was I was doing fine on the test. So maybe I wasn't so bad at this after all. Also, I realized that like AI was super cool, right? It was math that had the ability uh, not just to study objects, you know, megaparsecs, millions of light years away, uh, but but to directly sort of study study the lives of people people nearby and improve human lives concretely, and that was very important to me. Um, and we can talk more about how I got I got more interested in applied questions, but I think definitely the ability to sort of concretely study people at home. Uh, that that really mattered to me and was more appealing to me than studying galaxies or particles. Oh yeah, that that absolutely makes sense. Um, so, but yeah, that I'm very interested in then, as you said, that shift into studying applied questions as well, um, and looking at your CV and some of the publications that uh, came earlier in your career. It seems like maybe the first transition was into. Uh, biology, into computational biology and studies of bioinformatics and whatnot, into big consortia. How did you go about making that transition and maybe finding research to do along the way, um, et cetera? Well, I think, as I recall, what happened was I was maybe a, a sophomore or junior at Stanford, and I was studying physics and a little bit of AI, and then I got this bad medical news that I that I carried a genetic mutation that conferred a very high lifetime risk of cancer. And this is sort of, you know, frightening news if you're 19, 20, 21 years old. Um, and so I was sort of looking for comfort and I came across the papers of this professor at Stanford, Daphne Kohler, who was sort of at the intersection of computational biology and AI. Um, and she was sort of, you know, show, showing how we could use these computational methods to uh, study, study, you know, prognosis of, of patients and cancer and, may, you know, maybe, maybe deepen our understanding and improve treatments. And that was sort of deeply comforting to me, that notion. And so I, you know, I emailed Daphne Kohler, um, I think on New Year's Day, actually, and she, she wrote back. Uh, and sort of offered me a position in her lab, which was a you know very kind thing for a busy professor to do. Um, and and then I sort of started that summer doing doing computational biology research uh, in her lab with with a couple of excellent uh, PhD students and postdocs who were also very nice to me. And that was a positive experience. And that was sort of how I how I got into computational biology. Also, I like took a couple of classes on like cancer biology because I didn't know anything about that. Okay. That yeah, that, that sounds really cool. I think I've heard a lot of similar stories of uh, people reaching out to professors uh, based off of work that really hits close to home and being able to find positions in labs through through that uh, yeah. media that become super important later in one's career. Oh, totally. I also know that you're a Rhodes Scholar. How, how did the Rhodes Scholarship help guide your growing involvement in uh, those intersections of uh, mathematical and applied areas and particularly uh, how did it sort of open things up for you to be able to 
impact data sets associated with the social sciences as well? Ah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I, th I think the scholarship was great, first of all, because I got to go across the ocean and sort of meet and work with Sight Unseen, this guy, Christopher Yao, who turned out to be a super great uh, master supervisor. So that was just blind luck. Um, but I but I also think it, it was it was useful in a couple of ways in that, first of all, it, it allowed me to sort of talk uh, to people who are very interdisciplinary, right? Because that's what the scholarship program does, is it kind of brings across people in, in uh, very intellectually diverse fields. And, and that I really enjoyed. Like, I think talking, talking to people who are, you know, anthropologists, sociologists, economists, etc. That was, that was a great privilege. And it, and it really taught me the value of interdisciplinary conversations and collaboration. Um, I think a final thing was the year I spent overseas gave me sort of the chance to sort of write and pursue my own independent projects, whether it was sort of, you know, analysis of uh, Twitter data, or, or other things like this, um, and then to sort of work on getting those published in venues for a, a general audience like 538 and so on. And so I, I think having having the sort of time to do that and try that out, um, and sort of, you know, shoot, shoot my shot without without worrying too much about failing, I think I think that was very, that was very valuable. Okay. Um, I also understand that you worked at both 23andMe and Coursera within um, your time following undergrad. And um, how and when did you end up finding those opportunities and fitting both into a shorter period of time before your doctorate? Also, did those positions help you decide what you would study for your PhD? Um, well, I think what happened was I was a senior as an undergrad, and I decided I wanted to take a little time off before I did a PhD. And so I like applied to a number of different companies. And my initial plan was I was going to work for uh, like 15 months at five different companies for three months. And people were like, no, we're not going to hire you to do that. Like, you, you naive 20, like, uh, so I ended up working at only two of them. Um, and I, I kind of prioritized trying to work at places that, you know, seem to be doing good for the world, were working on interesting data science problems and would hire me to work on them even if I didn't have a PhD. Um, and 23andMe and Coursera both fit that bill. Um, I, I think I heard about them just because, I don't know, folks I knew at Stanford were working there or talking about it. Um, I don't know if they helped me decide what to study for my PhD. They taught me that I really liked doing data science, that I cared about social impact, um, that I was interested in broader things than pure computational biology. Um, and I think they also taught me that um, industry is, it, it offers things that, that, that are nice in contrast to purely academic research. And I think that is a valuable lesson to learn before you go into a PhD because it's sort of teaches you that like if you're totally miserable in your PhD, like you can you can always go and do interesting things elsewhere, right? It, like academic life is not the only way to do interesting research, although it does have some major advantages as well. Right. That, that's so important. I feel like um, those types of insights are rarely communicated in uh, a simple way and are kind of best picked up by having the experience. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I also wanted to ask about uh, the transition then after uh, working at 23andMe and Coursera and having a bit of a break, uh, the transition back to working at Stanford uh, to finally getting your PhD. And the, the assumption that you probably had a good understanding of what their computer science department was like after completing your undergrad and master's there. 
So how did you end up choosing your graduate or your PhD rather advisor uh, compared to your prior advisors? And what other role models and major influences helped you find your path? That's a good question. So so the way Stanford uh, PhD works is that you arrive and you sort of work with people for three month periods at a time, you do what are called rotations. And I do think that's a very attractive thing if you can have it in a PhD program, because it helps you sort of see, you know, who, who do you actually like working with? Like, who do you communicate well with? Like, there are lots of nice and brilliant people where you just don't like talk to talk to each other that well, or like your interests don't align that well. So so having the chance to work with someone for three months is super valuable. So basically, I did that for for a number of, of people. Um, and what I realized during this process was, for one thing, I didn't want to do pure computational biology. Um, and the reason for that was, a few months before I started at Stanford, um, my grandpa died of brain cancer, and I just felt like I the problems I were was working on in computational biology they were too fundamental for my taste. It seemed like they wouldn't affect people like my grandpa for you know years or maybe decades. Which is not to say that no one should do that research. Clearly, it's essential to sort of deepening our fundamental understanding of biology. But I wanted to work on things that were more immediately applicable, I guess, to, to, to patients. I wanted to work, work on stuff where the basic row in a data set was not, you know, a gene, uh, or a cell, but a person. Um, and so that sort of guided me, uh, towards you, Ray, um, who is doing a lot of, you know, kind of social science research. Um, and I, I think another thing that was attractive to me about his lab was that he gave his students a lot of freedom. And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I I had the sense that Uray would be, uh, Uray would be open to doing that, which was which turned out to be a very accurate impression. Um, and and so I think you know he he ended up being a great PhD PhD advisor for me for that reason. Um, to your question of like what other role models or major influences, I mean, <laughs> they're they're really they're they're too they're too numerous. Uh, I think. To name, I mean, this is, suffice it to say that, like, without an enormous number of incredibly supportive um, undergraduate mentors and advisors, like, I would never have ended up doing a PhD because I just had people repeatedly saying, "You need to go do a PhD. Like, you're good at this. You need to go do a PhD." And I think we maybe underestimate how how important those conversations are, but they're they're really they're they're phenomenally incredibly important to sort of have older people you respect who are like, no, no, like you need to stay here. We need you here. I should say, I mean, I'm reluctant to list out people by name simply because I, I've done so elsewhere at more length and I don't want to leave anyone out. Like they're just they're just too many people. <laughs> Absolutely. No worries. Um I think that is often the case, right? It takes a whole village sometimes to... Oh, such a village. Yeah, so many busy people who are just like, I don't know, yeah, who are just unexpectedly kind. Okay, so um, then within your doctorate, it seems like, uh, again, looking at your CV, it seems like you are uh, continuing to focus on uh, these areas of uh, computation that are very heavily related to questions in health um, that involve data curation with huge data sets and methods development, and also outreach by outlets such as the New York Times. Um, so what led to this transition uh, into like direct outreach as well? And how did you build a foundation to provoke or access media attention as a scientist? 
Um, also, just what would you suggest for students seeking out similar opportunities? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I write for a general audience for a number of reasons. I think one is, you know, often I want to write on sort of policy or my work relates to policy topics like policing or COVID mobility po policy. And, you know, policymakers are not going to be able to read the entirety of our COVID paper, which I think is like 80 or 100 pages long or something like that. Um, and, and so, you know, you need to somehow condense it for them. And so, you know, you write an 800 word piece in the Washington Post, a 1200 word piece in the Washington Post. And that's, that's, you know, it's more accessible for, for busy people. Um, so, so I think that's one reason. I think a second reason is just like, you know, it makes science accessible to a broader audience, um, you know, in terms of gender and other types of diversity, in terms of scientific training, and that's an appealing thing to me. Um, and I think a final thing is like, it's fun, and it keeps you sane. I mean, you know this, right, if you're writing journal papers, like it can take like years to get journal papers published, it's like a war. Um, and writing blog posts or, or, or pieces for the Washington Post is comparatively much quicker, and, and it's fun. So that's a nice thing. Um, in terms of how to build a foundation, um, I've written a blog post with with uh, advice for young writers trying to do this, um, and perhaps I can give you the link to that or something like that. I, I don't know if there's a way to include that in your podcast somewhere, but um, uh, in brief, I mean, I think I, I aimed high and I failed a lot. I think one key is to kind of not not view rejection as a reflection on the quality of your work or 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 the piece right like the you know if you send something to the new york times opinion page or whatever like you know it, 99 percent of the time it's going to get rejected and that just like doesn't matter no one sees your failures right the key is to have a couple successes um and so specifically like the first piece i wrote for the new york times like uh you know i i, I just sent it to someone and she said oh this is good. She was a blogger. And so then I sent it to someone at the New York Times and, you know, it worked out. But but many other pieces I've I've had have been rejected. Um, I think another thing that helped was I started my own blog. Um, and then, you know, the good thing about your blog is uh, no one can reject you from publishing on your own blog. So I started putting pieces on my blog. And then eventually I took the blog and I think I sent it to 538 when the site first launched and they were looking for sort of, you know, freelance writers and they were like, okay, well, if this is your portfolio, maybe you can write some stuff for us as well. And so that was another, another thing that was helpful, but the blog post has more detailed tips um, on all of, all of these topics. Okay. I, we can absolutely link the blog thank post you. as well. Um, thank you so much for sharing. Sure. Um, so um, continuing to discuss some of the work that you uh, completed within your PhD, um, it seems like there are some themes of collecting and manipulating interesting data from different research areas. Um, for example, you have a recent paper uh, um, titled An Algorithmic Approach to Reducing Unexplained Pain Disparities that looks at thousands of patient radiographs uh, for those at risk of knee osteoarthritis. Well, you have another paper titled Daily, Weekly, Seasonal, and Menstrual Cycles in Women's Mood, Behavior, and Vital Signs, using various measures collected on cell phones from over 3.3 million women. Um, another high-impact pair of papers uh, that you're on also looks at the curation, methods developments, and resulting analyses of the largest open policing data set to date. Um, and as you said, you've recently put out this uh, 80 to 100 page uh, in length COVID-19 paper, which is also very interesting. Um, so it, I'm interested in understanding some of your recent work, therefore, and whether the ideas or the 
data sets came to you first uh, and whether you had to seek them out yourself, sort of, as well as what kinds of structures have enabled you to collect and curate immense data sets um, and publish on a schedule that uh, makes these concepts so relevant. Does this process maybe bear any similarities to the large research consortia that we see in bioinformatics? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So in only one case have I sort of been involved um, in the actual physical data collection effort. And that, that was the policing work where basically we collaborated with journalists. Uh, journalists are kind of heroic, great collaborators. Uh, and, and they sort of filed, you know, public records requests to, I think, more than 100 police departments over the course of, of years. And then we took that data and we sort of standardized it, you know, wrote thousands and thousands of lines of code uh, to put it into a common format that everyone could analyze, you know, in a consistent way across states. Because the problem, of course, is that every state curates its data uh, in a different format. Um, so, 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 so that was, you know, an enormous uh, data collection and curation effort. Uh, you know, I, I don't, from, from, from an enormous number of people, I don't know if it's thousands or tens of thousands of hours of work, but it was a huge amount of work. Um, in other cases, you know, I've relied on uh, the, the, the work of other folks who put in those thousands of hours themselves. So like, for example, our pain disparities work uh, relies on the osteoarthritis initiative, um, which is, again, you know, a multi-year, I'm sure, incredibly expensive effort to curate detailed data on people with osteoarthritis, including x-rays, also including tons of demographic information. So that that's, I think, you know, a government and an academic study. That's obviously, and, and maybe that, that bears some similarity to large bioinformatics consortia. Um, and then, you know, another example is often I rely on data sets um, collected via industry actors. So in the case of the menstrual cycles work, you know, that relies on data from a, from a women's health app uh, called Clue. And, you know, that that was founded by folks who were just trying to, you know, improve, improve knowledge um, of, of the menstrual cycle and, and increase, increase awareness about it and provide a useful product for people. Um, but, but it's also really accelerated women's health research. And I've done, done other work on industry data sets as well. Um, and that's definitely, definitely a valuable, a valuable source of data um, as well. In general, I think, you know, a nice thing about working in industry is you often have access to really great data, which is hard to get access to otherwise. The downside, though, is that in general, you know, companies don't always want you to publish on the things that are most academically interesting or most socially beneficial, right? Often they have their own financial incentives, and that can sort of hamper your ability to publish freely. But yeah, that that maybe describes the th you know three ways I've I've gotten data. You can collect the data set yourself. Uh, you can rely on sort of uh, openly available government data or sort of academic consortia data, which is a common bioinformatics model. And then you can also you know rely on industry data sets. Um, and in that case, you know, in the case of the Women's Health app, I just emailed them and we set up a collaboration. Okay. Um, so it seems like. Your research has clearly uh, benefited on multiple occasions from your connection to Microsoft, as well as just uh, your propensity to uh, find industry data sets that can help you analyze these very like great and large questions. Um, how did you choose to assume a research position in tech as you were finishing your PhD? Um, 
And how did you manage the anxiety maybe of prevailing views in our fields, which can look down on industry or treat deviation from academia as disqualification from a future academic career? That makes sense. My, my next question was why Microsoft, but I think all of those reasons absolutely make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it sounds like you also had the ability to choose not to complete a postdoc if you wanted to. So Actually, I yeah. Can I can I can I say one other thing on Microsoft? I mean, I think the reason I chose Microsoft specifically as an industry position is because I thought they would give me the freedom to say what I wanted to say. And for someone who publishes on like police discrimination, that's extremely important. And I think in particular, that was what dissuaded me from other industry research positions, because I think this may be less salient in the bioinformatics world, but I think in, in, in computer science, there's been a lot of controversy recently related to sort of the ability of academic researchers to publish exactly what they want when they're in industry. And for me, that was extremely important, that the ability to sort of have that academic freedom preserved, and I would not have taken a position at Microsoft if I had not been confident that they would. Okay, that absolutely makes sense. And I, I didn't even think about that side of things. Yeah. Um, okay, let's see. So now that you're about halfway through this year of being a postdoc um, and are, are moving towards starting your own lab, do you have a greater vision for the directions you want to continue exploring now that you're starting that lab? And um, what about Cornell Tech? where you're moving to specifically fits within the questions that you want to look at in the future? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, in general, the way I describe my work today is sort of as a Venn diagram where I work on three things. I work on machine learning, I work on healthcare, and I work on inequality. And generally, the projects I work on will involve at least two or all three of those things. So, you know, studying uh, racial and socioeconomic disparities in COVID infection rates using a, a you know machine learning model that's that's uh, that's that's all three of, of the things I'm interested in um, in terms of future directions I, I anticipate continuing to work at the intersection um, of, of those things just because there are so many so many projects which lie at that those intersections um, you know there, there are plenty of things I haven't explored yet that I'd like to do more work on for example one thing is is intimate partner violence um, which I'm interested in because it is 
astonishingly uh, pervasive. Like if you think of sort of the forces that continue to produce gender inequality, both in the U.S. and worldwide, intimate partner violence surely has to be at the top of that list. Um, uh, and 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 it's just always been a personally compelling problem to me. I think the the open question in my mind is how can sort of computational scientists be be most helpful here? But but I you know I have some ideas in that regard. Um, but I th more the broader answer to your question is just if it relates to health and inequality and and a math nerd can be helpful, I'm probably interested. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so then another similar question is just regarding applied versus basic research. Is there a basic balance for you to strike between the two? Um, which one most often informs the other for you? Or is it really those intersections that you are mostly drawn towards? I mean, I think I would characterize my work as highly applied, you know, applied statistics, applied machine learning. Um, I like to, you know, I like to be able to make a compelling argument that this could like make people's lives better uh, in the next five years, something like this, which is not, you know, again, I'm not saying no one should do the research that's 50 years down the road, but but I tend to be focusing on how can I make people's lives better um, in, in the short term, just because that's sort of most personally satisfying to me. So as you've talked about, multiple of your recent papers seem to directly characterize and impact disparities in patient outcomes which also fits very well into the lens of preventative medicine. Um, this seems like a totally unique strategy to have organizational sway and a statement that good objective science can reveal policy suggestions and can help justify and interpret inequalities um, that might drive things like activism, social movements, or healthcare improvement. Um, when did you realize this model could work? And did you ever expect to have a direct influence on medicine? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, well first, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people, uh, right, who are, who are working on, on health disparities. You know, there are entire departments devoted specifically to looking on at disparities um, in health. And I think this is driven by the simple recognition uh, that, that there are, you know, that this, there, there are huge, huge disparities um, in, in health and in healthcare across the United States. COVID perhaps is the most salient uh, example in, in, in people's minds about this. I mean, you know, it is, it is extraordinary, right? The, the disparities, the racial and socioeconomic disparities you see in case rates and death rates. And it is extraordinary that the populations that are suffering most from the disease are also the least likely uh, somehow to get vaccinated. I mean, I, it's not extraordinary in the sense that we don't understand why this is happening, but it's not something we should be numb to. It's morally outrageous. So I think, so I think, you know, that that's, that's why I think the intersection of healthcare and inequality is, 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 is so compelling. I mean, I think in terms of my own personal interest, um, you know, I'm, I'm a statistician. I, I chase signal, right? I chase things with big, effect sizes. And I think one thing that was compelling to me as a 20-year-old or a 21-year-old or whatever, sort of starting to really look at these data sets for the first time is like, you would reliably have big coefficients on all these dimensions of disparity, gender or race or whatever. And so I was like, okay, you know, this is clearly something that matters. And this is a way to write papers that that matter. We're not looking at tiny effect sizes. We're not looking at one percent effects here. Like these things are are profound influences due to our sort of historic legacy of inequality. And I think that was sort of what 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 drove me in that direction. Okay, um, between your different uh, 
papers. Was there really one example of uh, an article you wrote in the Times or um, of a paper that led to uh, a direct change that clinicians could make or uh, something they could be more aware of that might affect individual patients specifically? Um, or I guess an intervention would be the easiest way to say that. Um, is there one example of an intervention or a, a point where you're able to uh, communicate to a broad audience in a way that could cause such changes um, kind of gave you that realization of not only did I want to make this um, impact on medicine and analyze these questions of disparity, but I, I've now done this. What was kind of the proof of concept for you? Um, I mean, I think I've mostly failed to to achieve that bar. I mean, that that is the bar I strive for, like the idea that like, oh, we actually we we concretely touch human lives. Um, I think most of my projects have failed to do that. But I think I think there have been some some exceptions. Um, I think, you know, our work on policing, you know, eventually produced a collaboration with with the Los Angeles Times, where the Times, you know, they they used our methods and and wrote a series of articles that eventually, you know, the LA Police Department said, okay, we're gonna you know cut back on random searches because you've convincingly convincingly showed there these are there are racial disparities and and we're gonna change policing policy as a consequence of that. So, you know, I think that. That was, you know, that was that that that's the kind of outcome that that keeps me in research. You know, more recently, I think, you know, our work on on COVID and kind of trying to model how disparities in COVID arise and and which uh, types of businesses lead to particularly hard uh, large increases in infection rates if they're opened. Um, you know that 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 I think. Has has started to influence the way people think think about these things, um, and and we'll sort of see that continuing to to go forward. But I think for me, you know, in general, yeah, I, the the most satisfying outcomes for projects are always when I can, you know, someone writes to me and says, oh, you know, your work meant something to me personally, or you know, here's something we're doing differently as a consequence of this. Uh, that that's always that's always the bar I'm eventually aiming for. Yeah, that, that's really cool. I think that makes very salient as well the point you made earlier about um, about uh, being interested in data sets that have people as the unit rather than a gene, for example, and kind of the power of being able to like suggest um, ways of improving how people might uh, interact with the world or rather uh, to look in an interventional way, but also sort of in a descriptive way and kind of best characterize the, the information within these enormous data sets on such relevant subjects. Oh, totally. And and to be clear, again, you know, I, I am in no way knocking uh, people who are doing fundamental research on genes, right? Like we, we've got like a life-saving COVID vaccine, or I don't know, several, uh, be because of decades of this fundamental research, you know, very much standing on the shoulders of giants. So I'm by no means knocking that kind of fundamental research, super important, just as a matter of research taste. Um, it's, it's not what appeals to me most personally. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. I, so my next question was initially sort of wondering about that transition um, 
which I think you've already described between your work in the field of bioinformatics um, and uh, which is not to minimize. It seems like you um, did publish a lot in that field, uh, sort of on your way to finding, as you said, that your research tastes maybe um, in the long term would be differently housed within uh, health and disparities and whatnot. Um, but sort of um, what was it like for you working in that field? And like, what, why was it um, that you continued to those ends uh, sort of on, along the way to making that eventual transition? You're saying, what was it like for me to work in, in bioinformatics specifically? Yeah, I, and also, um, what, what was it like to work in bioinformatics for long enough that you would kind of built a collection of publications and whatnot, and then make the eventual transition, which, um, you know, I, I think I work with a lot of people who are sort of would describe themselves as data agnostic, but it seems like you, you know, very much had reasons for wanting to work in bioinformatics and being interested in cancer and health and whatnot, and then had likewise very uh, uh, interesting and important reasons to be shifting towards uh, focusing on uh, as you mentioned, uh, human beings is sort of a unit of the data sets that you'd be looking at and these questions and disparity in health. Um, I guess, was it ever, um, was it ever an intimidating and difficult thought to shift towards this different uh, area within computational analyses? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I will say, you know, I very much enjoyed working within bioinformatics, but I think uh, largely because I just had such, you know, fantastic mentors like, you know, Alexis Battle, Sarah Mustafavi, Daphne Kohler, uh, Chris Yao, like all, all the people I was writing, all the senior authors on the, on the bioinformatics papers I was writing were just, you know, great mentors. And so, and, and intellectually, you know, I really remember enjoying liking it like at oxford you know i spent the whole year writing one bioinformatics paper and i would just like wake up every day and like go and get my tea because that's all they drink in britain right and uh well that's not true that's not actually true i'm not stereotyping about the british they do drink a lot of tea it's true um and and then you know i would just like work on the em algorithm for uh single cell rna seq data for for you know a couple hours and, and that would be my day like all through the long dark british winter and that was great um, in terms of whether I found it intimidating to shift, I don't remember questioning whether I could do computational social science research, which was sort of where I shifted to next. And I think probably there were two reasons for that. The first was that I had done a bit of it on my own, you know, through sort of blogging and, and analyzing Twitter data. And, and it, you know, it seemed like something I could do. Um, and the second, I think, was probably that I was a bit of an, you know, overconfident, arrogant, uh, and entering PhD student. And, uh, you know, perhaps some folks would still tell you that I'm too confident in myself, uh, my mother in particular. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think perhaps with time, I got a bit more intellectual humility. Um, but, I, but I don't remember being like, oh, you know, I've only ever researched genes. Like, can I research people? I, I, I don't remember having having that that fear. Perhaps you know, probably I should have. <laughs> um, it seems like you've been very successful since that shift as well, and it's cool to see that ability to sort of uh, approach those data sets that, as you said, have the most interesting, the most 
uh, the greatest effect size of signal um, and sort of against uh, human populations, uh, that effect size in a way that can be ameliorated. Um, you know, it sounds like this was actually a great shift for you to make. And actually, I'm also very interested in what you've described relating to uh, industry collaborations, um, because now that you've spent time working at Microsoft as well, um, I'm wondering if uh, future collaborations with Microsoft are in store, if this, uh, you've described Microsoft research as being very academic in sense, but I'm sure, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure that such collaborations uh, necessarily have brought about some very important mentors for you among your uh, peers as well as that you're kind of moving into a new area with a new set of mentors uh, at Cornell Tech. Um, and so I, I'm sort of wondering what you're carrying forward from your current position and uh, whether you would formally continue involvement in Microsoft's uh, research in the future. Well, I'll say, I mean, I very much hope to stay in touch with folks at, at Microsoft. Um, you know, they're they're fantastic researchers, many of them, you know, kind of going back and forth between academia and industry themselves. Um, and they're also like really nice people. And I'm not I'm not just saying this because like I, you know, I have to see them in the office every day because I actually don't. Um, but uh, so, so I very much hope, you know, we'll, we'll continue to keep conversation lines uh, go, going forward. I don't know if I'll, I'll have a formal position. I, you know, I haven't really thought that far ahead. Um, and, and, you know, with other industry folks as well, you know, I'm, I'm still in touch with my old boss at 23andMe, uh, Nick, Nick Erickson, who, you know, just because he's a, he's a very, he's a very nice guy. And so, so I think, it, you know, I, I, I like to stay in touch with my industry colleagues because, um, because they're, you know, I've just always found them great people to work with. I think also, you know, for many of the questions you want to answer, like industry data sets um, are very potentially useful. I mean, 23andMe, in terms of their ability to accelerate, you know, human genetics research has kind of compiled an unparalleled resource, right? Um, and, and you know, so 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 certainly, yes, I'd, I'd hope to keep the lines of communication open there. Um you know, as long as long as I sort of have faith in the, I think this is another important quality my industry research collaborators have had is like, you know, they share my interest um, in the social good and in sort of publishing openly and freely to that end. Um, those are the sorts of people I like to work with. It doesn't characterize everyone working with data, um, and I, I think you know that that's that's one really huge thing I value in my industry colleagues as well. Okay. Um. I think you've also talked uh, a lot about mentorship and very fondly about sort of good mentors that you've had in the past. Um, so how have you, or what have you picked up from your previous mentors that you're excited now uh, as you begin your lab and advise PhD students, you know, um, in, a, in a formal sense are kind of creating what will be a, a legacy under your name. Uh, what are those features of mentorship that you're carrying forward? And do you still look uh, towards mentors 
um, above you or among you? Oh, totally, totally. I mean, I think, you know, right now, as sort of a, you know, starting as a professor student, I'm trying to like learn to do a whole bunch of new things. Like, how do you how do you write a grant? Like, I like never worried about money before, right? I just like was on a fellowship and did whatever I wanted. Uh, and it turns out that's actually not the way the world works. And all of a sudden, I'm like running a small startup. And like, certainly, there are plenty of people I talk to about learning the ropes of that, including at Cornell Tech, um, who've, who've been, you know, very colleagues who have been very generous and valuable with my time, their time. Um, you know, I think in terms of mentoring students myself, um, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm kind of uh, terrified, honestly, uh, because to me, the whole sort of academic model where it's like, oh, you're a great individual researcher who's good at sort of being antisocial and writing code all day. Now we're going to like make you suddenly responsible for the lives and livelihoods of a bunch of like, you know, fragile budding researchers. That's like insane. Like who, who knows uh, if I'll be a good manager. Uh, so, you know, that said, I take that responsibility extremely seriously. Um, and I, you know, I, I am kind of actively working to, 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 to try and learn to be a good manager. So for example, I've been reading books on management. I've been um, trying to trying to ask for advice on on Twitter <laughs> about about how to how to manage. I plan to join a Slack for new PIs and kind of talk to them about management. This is something my I talk to my boyfriend about a lot also because he's an in industry and I think he's he's sort of good at working with and and managing people. Um, I think one perhaps lesson I, I've taken a couple lessons from my own experiences. The first is. You know, mentors are extremely important to me. Um, and so I do make it a point if like a random young person at, reaches out to me for advice, um, you know, I, I will try I will try and basically talk to anyone for at least, you know, half an hour. Um, and and I, I very much enjoy uh, the, those those conversations. I think another general lesson I've taken from sort of watching other PhD students um, and from my own experiences is that people are vulnerable, um, more, more vulnerable than they let on, I think. You know, there's a lot of undiagnosed mental health issues in, in academia and more broadly um, in the world. And so I think you know, being being compassionate with people and, and realizing that there's more <laughs> to life than academic excellence and that, you know, people may be in pain or may be demoralized even if they don't show it to you directly. Sorry, I don't mean to be really grim on your podcast, but but I think my, my point my point is just like, you know, you should be nice to people. You should be gentle with people. Um because because they're more vulnerable than they'll let on. Um, I think one of my interests in being a professor is kind of trying to push that message and trying to make academia a, a kinder place. And my sense is that people are appreciating that lesson to it to an increasing degree. Um, even you know doing stuff like responding to the Me Too movement and stuff like this, there's like an increasing realization that like, you know, hey, just because you're brilliant doesn't mean that you can be a terrible person. And like, we really are going to try and create create an environment where people can learn and grow as researchers. Um, and, and that's very much a movement that I would like to be part of. Great. I also wanted to ask, um, so I, I work in a lab that's very much related to deep learning. And so I, I think of your uh, PhD advisors laboratory, therefore, for a lot of their work in um, in graph neural networks, graph sure. evolutional networks, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so 
but I see that a lot of your work is still very housed in statistics, especially work relating to disparities and um, to uh, these areas of healthcare inequality and whatnot. Um, I oftentimes get this idea of mostly doing deep learning work and working with these abstract concepts and neural networks and whatnot that, um, you know, I, I've gotten kind of used to this feeling of maybe uh, expecting uh, rejection from certain conferences or expecting that a lot of the interdisciplinary areas sort of don't do a great job of uh, or will not do a great job of kind of making room for those areas in research and it's always very interesting to kind of move uh, to to exist within that space. Uh, and I think it's changing dynamically. So I'm also kind of wondering what is the shift towards kind of the uh, the greater acceptance of this highly computational, but also uh, you know highly policy oriented and uh, social science oriented research. What has that shift been like for you over the last number of years? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think methodologically, I, I'm pretty agnostic. You know, I, I do work on deep learning. I've, I've taken work, you know, I've taken methods from from sort of more pure statistics, uh, you know, econometrics, stuff like this. I mean, in general, I my preference is always for the method, which is the simplest way to solve the applied problem in a rigorous way. The problem is often that simple method is like actually quite complicated, right? Like still waters kind of run arbitrarily deep and always deeper than you than you know when you start start out working. So my work does sometimes end up pretty methods heavy just because the real world is complicated. In terms of where I publish, I mean, I think, you know, I half of my work kind of, or I don't know what fraction, but some fraction of my work appears um, in CS conferences. Like, you know, we, ju we just uh, had, a, had an ICML submission, just had a KDD submission, so sort of standard computer science venues. And then, you know, some fraction of my work appears in more general interest journals, um, like, you know, nature, nature medicine, places like this. And I think one one salient difference is, is how you write the paper, right? So like, if you're going to publish uh, in, in ICML or KDD or something like this, like, you know, methods often have to be sort of near the near the fore and people have to see how you're how you're as you say you know doing a doing a fancy proof or or, or something like this uh whereas if you publish in a general interest journal you know uh often the methods are going to get kind of pushed into size you know eight font at the very end of your paper because that's just not what the audience um is interested in so so there's a difference in the writing um and sometimes people will publish in both right they'll write a methods paper and then they'll also write a general interest paper that's a strategy that people sometimes pursue i think in general trend i've seen across my fields is an increasing appreciation um you know among cs folks for for applied and interdisciplinary work i mean i think there is a real and growing hunger for doing work that that makes the world, you know, concretely better. And, you know, maybe a specific example of this is the increasing focus on equity um, when it comes to how we design our algorithms. And so, you know, you see this in the incredible growth of papers on algorithmic fairness, and you see it in sort of the creation of new conferences um, at, at the, you know, intersection of, of various fields. Um, and, and so I think, you know, for me, I'm not I'm not super, super concerned about sort of venues to publish in, because what I've seen is that people, 
you know, yeah, there, there's an increasing appreciation that the world is, is deeply unfair and, and, and equitable. And, and like we as computer scientists are ought to be doing our, our part to fix that. Great. Um, that was a wonderful answer. <laughs> I, I was trying to figure out exactly how to ask that question. I think you <laughs> uh, caught on to exactly what I was trying to get at. Um, I also wanted to ask relating to computational policy, sort of, would you um, would you ever consider taking a position in government or um, focusing maybe as you're now applying for grants um, on these major uh, governmental? I mean, for us, I feel like in bioinformatics, it's like you work on uh, NIH grants or you work on things that could maybe be even more uh, intensive and governmentally entrenched, such as with the Department of Defense. Right. Um, and is there sort of a similar question that you're coming to now of like, how closely might I be associated, associated with um, these uh, governmental interests um, and how to balance that with this fact of you sort of uh, collecting much of your data, um, enriching your research very primarily sometimes from these industry connections? Yeah, I think that's a great uh, question. I mean, I very much see, you know, governmental sources of funding being in my my future, you know, NSF, NIH, maybe DARPA, um, just because, you know, that it's always, you know, partially funded my advisor's work. And so it's a very natural source of funding uh, and a collaboration for computer scientists in terms of, were you asking if I would like actually consider taking a position in, in government or in policymaking, if that would be of interest or was that not the question? Um, I, I mean, I think that is also a, a valid question, maybe. Um, do, you, do you think that you could potentially see yourself uh, going about uh, taking formal governmental <laughs> positions in the future? Or um, I know a lot of, I, one of the most important people for me to, read, or to meet, for example, um, when I was early on in my career was uh, Eric Lander. Right, so seeing that progression of, you know, increasingly great science and then um, kind of being able to branch out, I think was maybe the next stage and make uh, concrete uh, 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 improvements in people's lives through the Innocence Project and other and such things that he was involved with. And then suddenly he was a science advisor and, you know, it's uh, taking time off now to be a cabinet member. Um, I mean, I think these things might be very far away and difficult to talk about, but um, do you have any interest in the future in sort of seeking out formal science policy advisorship uh, as something that would be uh, some chunk of your involvement in the future? Uh, yeah, so it's an interesting question. I, it's not something I know anything about, right? I have no, I have no experience um, in government, how it works, uh, how helpful I could actually be. So I think I'm agnostic in that regard, uh, and perhaps even a little wary, as I'm wary of anything which I, which I don't have any experience in. Um, that said, I'm extremely interested in sort of the most direct way to concretely improve people's lives. And it's obvious there's, there's often a gap between academic paper writing uh, and actual government policy. And so a logical way to close that gap at least in principle, uh, is is to you know serve in government or serve on advisory boards, and so I'm 
very interested in that regard. I guess I'll say I'm hoping my little sisters, one of my little sisters is, is in law school and one is in med school, and both of them are kind of more uh, tuned into the policy world than I am. I'm hoping that they'll they'll uh, they'll give me advice and explain to me how to how to do this uh, and and we'll go from there. I certainly one thing I think I could not do is run for a political office because I'm just not my social skills aren't good enough. It would have to be a, a non-elected position, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, is there is there anything else that you'd like to uh, talk about? I guess we have about fifteen minutes left and. Um, all that I sort of had listed prior to this uh, to follow would be just asking what kind of advisor you'd like to be, which I think you've maybe talked about, um, but could talk about a little bit more. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, I mean, I think, I think in terms of the kind of advisor I'd like to be, I think the the primary thing is. I've 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 just I've seen the destructive impact uh, that advisors can have on their students' mental health. This is not because of my own advisor. My own advisor, Ura, was fantastic, and Ura and I always got along fine. But I but I certainly saw this happen, um, and and I'd like to avoid doing that. Like I'd like you know I'd like to be someone who who supports my students, um, even if there's deadlines, even if I need them to get a lot of work done for the sake of my own career, you know, I, I, I don't want to make people miserable, uh, as a consequence of that. And I, I hope I'll be able to sort of contribute to their, to their growth and, and development of science as, as scientists, but also sort of their general, uh, self-esteem. And in that regard, I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of making a deliberate effort to kind of try and one, one thing my own advisor Yuri did that I always appreciated was I think he's sort of a natural optimist uh, on life. You know, he sort of naturally sees the way things can go right and gets excited about that. And I've watched a lot of people respond positively to that. And that's not necessarily my own instinct as a researcher. Like I tend to see the way things are flawed and can go wrong. And I think one thing I'm working on is you know, conveying, sort of conveying the excitement to people and trying, trying to be positive and, and upbeat and not say all the limitations in the analysis is the first thing I say. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences in such depth. Uh, it's great to finally have you on our podcast. And uh, if it's all right with you, I can cut off the interview here, but I'll make sure to include relevant links such as uh, the blog posts that you had talked about earlier to your website and Twitter accounts as well um, in the description. Okay, that's it. Oh, wait, can I say one other thing I'd like to do as an advisor? I mean, I, sorry, uh, I, you know, I think another thing which is very appealing to me is being kind of able to make a space for people who haven't been represented in, in computer science. Uh, in, in the past, I mean, I think I I don't know. I get an emotional lift out of being able to be able to mentor, you know, women and other underrepresented groups. And so it's it's my hope that those folks will be well represented in my lab as they have been um, in, in, in my past collaborations. And so in that spirit, if you are a person who happens to be listening to this um, and, and, you know, you're, you, you have interests or you're from a background that hasn't always been well represented in computer science, please, you know, consider um, applying to Cornell and, 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 uh, and shooting me an email because I'd be happy to chat further in that regard if you're interested in making the world uh, a better place in the areas of inequality in healthcare. Sorry, sorry to include an advertisement for my own lab in your podcast, but please do reach no, out. It's great. I mean, I think 
it very much being somebody also from a place of uh, underrepresented minority in science, uh, being told to apply, <laughs> I think was a huge deal for me to get where I am now. So. Yeah, no, I think that's right, right? Because people don't always realize they should. And you kind of assume that they realize and like they, people don't. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you too. Bye. Bye-bye.